John Knox was born around 1514 at Haddington, a small town south of Edinburgh. Around the year 1529, he entered the University of St. Andrews and went on to study theology. He was ordained in 1536, but became a notary, then a tutor to the sons of local lards, ranking, those are the lower ranking Scottish nobility. He was a very good speaker and debater. This talent proved useful later in life when he preached the gospel and persuaded others with the truth. Dramatic events were unfolding in Scotland during Knox's youth. Many were angry with the Catholic Church, which owned more than half the real estate and gathered an annual income of nearly 18 times that of the crown. Bishops and priests were often mere political appointments. Many never hid their immoral lives. In the early 1540s, Knox came under the influence of converter, converted reformers under the preaching of Thomas Gillamy. He, he joined them. Knox then became a bodyguard for the fear, fiery Protestant preacher George <clears throat> Wishart, who was speaking throughout Scotland, meeting with other Protestants, strengthening his faith. Knox would join Wishart in his preaching journeys, and Wishart would tell people that all preaching and teaching must be tested by Scripture. One of the Roman Catholic doctrines he preached against most strongly was purgatory. Roman Catholics believed that purgatory was a kind of waiting place where a believer's soul went after they died. If people prayed for that soul, burned candles, and had masses often enough, the soul eventually would go to heaven. And Wishart taught that the people taught the people what the Bible said about this false doctrine and other errors promoted by the Roman Catholic Church. It would cost him his life. He was arrested January 16, 1546, and was burned at the stake March 1st of that same year. This devastated John Knox. He wanted to die alongside his mentor, but was encouraged to continue with the church and take his place in preaching. But John didn't want to. Persecution continued, but Knox stayed in Glasgow, and one day a converted monk, now Pastor John Ruff, asked Knox to help in a parish church by serving and preaching. Knox was hesitant to join him, feeling the weight of such a calling. He was even challenged during a sermon as John Ruff called on him, singling him out in the congregation to take up the mantle and join in the work. Knox was startled, burst into tears, and left the service. He begged the Lord for direction, and when God showed him that he must preach, Knox obeyed. People would flock to hear this new preacher. He was not afraid to preach hard truth and also to point out the errors in the Roman Catholic Church. He was a blunt preacher. But before long, he was taken prisoner by the French along with other Scottish Protestant men. For almost two years, Knox worked as a galley slave on one of their ships. These slaves were chained to their seat and commanded to oar the boat. On one occasion, the French tried to make him pray to an idol of Mary, but Knox refused to do it. He grabbed the image threw it in the river with disgust and said, let our lady now save herself. She's light enough. Let her learn how to swim. <laughs> he eventually was released, moved among a few places throughout Europe, eventually spending some time in Geneva, Switzerland with John Calvin. His time in Switzerland enabled Knox to produce theological works which inflamed not only the hearts of his fellow believers, but the hatred of those ruling in Scotland. While he was pastoring an English-speaking congregation in Geneva, Knox's goal was to return to Scotland and spark a revival. His motto was, give me Scotland or I die. Finally able to return to Scotland, Knox's gospel preaching was received by revolutionaries who were preparing to revolt against, this Catholic, revolt against the Catholic leader, Mary, Queen of Scots. As the hostiles ended, Knox established the Reformed Church of Scotland, which became modern Presbyterianism. 
Knox's fiery determination to stand with the gospel against human authority inspired his countrymen and left a lasting legacy of faithfulness. His ability to unite reason and passion in the pulpit has influenced centuries of preachers. In Knox's lifetime, he was denounced by regents, queens, and councils, and his effigy hoisted high and burned at the Mercy Cross in Edinburgh. He was ordered never to preach again, and commands were issued that he be shot on sight if he failed to comply. Knox never complied. Years later, a would-be assassin fired a shot through a window of Knox's house in Edinburgh, narrowly missing him. Still, Knox continued to preach. I learned a lot about John Knox while I was in seminary and even had the chance to visit Scotland in 2011. It's known that Knox wanted to be buried at least 20 yards from the church where he served. In 1972, the 400th anniversary of his death, the Scottish people decided that such a man as John Knox was inappropriate to commemorate on a Scottish stamp. And as a final blow, the Edinburgh Town Council ordered the removal of the stone marking his grave, relating his earthly resting place to obscurity. Today, John Knox is buried, disgraced, underneath a parking lot. It's behind uh, St. Giles Cathedral. And you can visit it, as I did, in space number 23. For $10, you can park your car over his grave. Knox was an interesting man. Truly, great men of God care far more for the glory of Jesus Christ than for themselves. Knox is a model for the ordinary Christian, especially the one who feels his own weakness, but who nevertheless wants to serve Christ in a troubled world. Knox's life teaches that the most timid saint becomes a formidable giant when strengthened by the almighty power of God in Christ alone. Knox was ultimately convinced that God would protect him, so he was willing to suffer for the cause of Christ in Scotland. He is an earthly spiritual giant for the church because he wasn't afraid to suffer for God, and he kept the faith. This morning, we continue in our series in 2 Timothy. And really, the, the statement that encapsulizes all I want to, to share this morning is this. So if you're going to take any notes at all, write down this sentence. God's chosen servants are commanded to share in the sufferings for the gospel and to keep their faith in Jesus by protecting the gospel until Jesus comes. It's the main objective for this sermon this morning, and I'll say it again. God's chosen servants are commanded to share in the sufferings for the gospel and to keep their faith in Jesus by protecting the gospel until Jesus comes. So I'm gonna read the passage here this morning and then pray. We're in 2 Timothy chapter one. If you're using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 935. And we're gonna look at verses eight through 18, Lord willing, this morning. So follow with me as I read. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware all that, uh, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. I'm gonna get that right later, I promise. For he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me. Earnestly he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Father, we come here to sit under the preaching of your word after six days out in the world. And we have heard all sorts of anti-gospel language. We have experienced anti-gospel situations at work or school or in the home. And perhaps some that are seated here have forgotten about you this week. Forgive us. We gather this morning as a family to find refuge in you and in the declaring of your word. And I ask that you would speak to your children here this morning, open their ears, soften their hearts, strengthen their resolve to leave this place to serve you with a mighty reliance upon your spirit for your honor, for your glory, I pray. Amen. The first thing I want to talk about is verses 8 through 12, his charge to share in suffering. The American Heritage Dictionary defines shame as a painful emotion caused by the belief that one is or is perceived by others to be inferior and unworthy of affection or respect because of one's actions, thoughts, circumstances, or experiences. Timothy is commanded here in verse 8 to not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the gospel or of his Lord or of his spiritual father, Paul. This commanded is grounded in verse seven that we looked at last week. It says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God doesn't give fear or shame. That's from our flesh or from our enemy. So as redeemed believers in Jesus were to put shame and fear away through the power of the gospel. There were plenty of opportunities for Timothy to feel shame for the career choice that he had made. Christians were being slaughtered in Rome. And Paul's not writing from an ivory tower, but a dungeon. Timothy, as God's chosen servant, is commanded to share in the sufferings for the sake of the gospel. I don't know if you know this as you read the Bible, but there's no mention of a prosperity gospel in our Bible. And yet that's a very popular thing nowadays. It's invented by man. It's a false gospel that teaches you can have it all, and life will go just great. Jesus had many things to say about the wicked belief of the prosperity gospel in relation to riches. Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in Luke 9, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? But it's not just the wealth of prosperity gospel that Jesus condemns, it's also prosperity gospel of comfort. Have you subtly slipped into a prosperity gospel way of life regarding your comfort? Meaning if anything ever goes wrong, you freak out. See, this Paul's gonna talk about in this passage because later in verse 15, Paul calls out those who really wanted the prosperity of comfort. When the tough got going, they got going. They were unwilling to suffer. They were ashamed of Paul. Ultimately, they were ashamed of the gospel. Are you pulling back from sharing the gospel, flinching because of what others might think of you? Are you more concerned of what others think of you because you call yourself a Christian, because you go to church? Are you unwilling to suffer? Are you ashamed of the testimony about our Lord? Like Peter, who said he would never deny Jesus, and then when confronted with truth, denied him three times. Are you in those same situations, friends, challenged about your faith in Jesus and yet scared of what you might lose if you stand with him? Are you really believing the prosperity gospel? I mean, the prosperity gospel believes that there'll be no suffering. It's the prosperity gospel that believes that the Christian life is just a fluffy, flowery walk. And that's not promised to you. If you came to Jesus Christ thinking that you would have an easy life, you were lied to. Jesus said in John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Friends, if you believe the good news, if you believe that all men are sinners deserving death, eternal separation from God forever, and the only way they can be saved is through the belief in the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then you are polar opposite than this world. And they will be disgusted by you. Your coworkers, your neighbors, even your family members that live in the same house as you will hate you and what you believe. Believing the gospel, trusting in Christ, puts you in the bullseye of this world. Did you forget that this week? But perhaps maybe you hid well this week. The people surrounding you, your coworkers, your neighbors, your acquaintances around town, if they really knew what you believed, how you really desired to live, that you even worshiped here this morning, would they now begin to speak ill of you, to think ill of you? No, maybe they wouldn't react and take your life. That happens in many parts of the world today, but not usually here in America. But it may result in the loss of privilege, the loss of respect in your community or in your workplace, it's social capital that you'll lose. 
you're, you're getting social capital in many forms right now through your workplace, your friends, and social media. And, and the more you have, the more respect you'll get. But if you, my friend, look to attend and, and join a Bible-believing church like ours, you'll be losing and spending social capital faster than you can replace it. If you want to keep your social capital, then you have to look like the world. You have to talk like the world. You have to act like the world. And perhaps you'll fool them for a while, and you'll keep your social capital, and you'll most likely avoid this hate that Jesus talks about in the Gospels. But if you do that, you won't be a Christian. That's not how a Christian lives. Remember, Paul tells us later in this letter, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Those who are living a Christian life, who seek to honor God, who flat out live a life of faithfulness to Jesus, it's inevitable that you will arouse confusion from the world. In many cases, you'll bring hostility out of people around you who are not in Jesus, who are not rooted in him, and they will hate the way that you live, the way that you think, because you don't live and think the way they do. Instead, the challenge, the command we have here by Paul is do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Paul encourages Timothy in this. He says we don't have to endure suffering on our own. Paul teaches that we were to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This is from the Greek word dunamis, which we get the word dynamite. It refers to the inerrant power of God who can hurl galaxies into space and pack a, into an atom's sphere enough energy to explode an island. That is the power that he brings to us when we're called to suffer. So we shouldn't be ashamed to suffer. Now why else should we not be ashamed? It continues because of salvation. Look at verse 9. Paul says, who saved us, which, which means he has delivered us. And if you need to be delivered, that means you're captive. You're captive to sin with no power to save yourselves. He has saved us and called us. That word mean, means to summon, like a summons that you would receive from a court. You can't ignore it. You can't put it off. You have to go. He's called us to a holy calling. Holy means to, to separate, to set aside for God here, not because of works. You cannot be saved by works. There's, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. It's all of Jesus. And he says, but because of his own purpose and grace. It's not our purpose that we're saved. It was his purpose. It was his choice. Romans says it, it doesn't depend on human will, but on God. Or what Jesus said in John's gospel, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I don't know how Jesus could be any more clear for us this morning. There's nothing good in us. There's nothing good in us that would, that in desire to draw close to God, if it were up to us, we would refuse God. It's God's purpose to save us. 
Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There is no human effort in salvation, no ingenuity, but God's own purpose to save us. And if we feel that that isn't fair, it's because we haven't fully understood our own depravity. We haven't understood how truly sinful we are. It was his own purpose, he says. It was his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In verse 10, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul is, is saying to Timothy, in effect, God has already done the harder thing. He saved you. So don't worry about the lesser things in life. Because this is right on the heels of being willing and not ashamed of the gospel, willing to suffer. And Paul is reminding Timothy again that it is God who calls his elect children with a holy calling. It's a divine summons which arrests all who are chosen and separates them to life unto God. And as the preaching of the gospel goes forth, we see in verse 8, God effectually calls his elect to himself, his children. It is both the human preaching and divine calling which are necessary for salvation. Both the ex external invitation of the good news of the gospel and the internal call of the Holy Spirit. And this internal call is a holy calling, he says. And did you get that when it, Paul says, when was this decided? Before the ages began. It was God's choice to save those whom he wills. Christian here, you were chosen, elect of God, for his own purposes and his own grace. John Calvin notes, Paul argues that salvation was given to us by free grace, since we had done nothing before this to deserve it. For if God chose us from the foundation of the world, he would not have taken any notice of works, as there were not any, and we ourselves did not exist. Salvation is all of God. And so, if you're here this morning, and you don't believe in Jesus, I implore you to turn from your sins of relying on yourself for salvation and then trusting Christ alone. And perhaps you're looking at your circumstances right now and they don't seem that bad. You may even feel prosperous. If you feel that way, beware. Good circumstances are like a fog. They cloud your perceptions. In themselves, difficulty and suffering are not good, but they can clear away the clouds and help you see heart's true desires. John Piper says, if you don't find your satisfaction in God and in God alone, you will count him as an enemy when he hands you over to the sword. Friend, there is no guarantee of good circumstances in this life. Be very careful not to convince yourself you're following God when really you're doing nothing of the sort. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone. Paul continues here, he says in verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher. Paul speaking of himself as a preacher, an evangelist, to one who sounds forth the gospel. He's an apostle, one sent with a specific commission from God and a teacher. His favorite word in the pastoral epistles as, as one teaches men to obey the word and live it out. And then he marvels at this amazing privilege there in verse 12. He says, 
which, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Am I the only one that thought of the song growing up as a kid? That I'm not the only one, all right. I'm not gonna sing it for you, but. Who said that? Someone said, Phew. Huh, maybe I will sing it, no. Paul here is, is suffering because the gospel is glorious. It's worth it to Paul. Paul, he's suffering because it's so powerful and because it's the only hope for the lost. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. And remember, friends, where is he writing this letter? In a dark dungeon, chained to the ground, awaiting a death sentence that would take off his head. We have to remember that as we read this, this book. He says, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Why is he not ashamed? Because he knows whom he believes in. Paul knew what he believed. He continued to stress this over and over in the books that we have here in the New Testament. There's no wavering, no doubts, only profound confidence of perpetual faith in a constant relationship with God. And do you want to know how Paul grew and cemented his belief in God? He read the word and he prayed. Sounds pretty basic, doesn't it? He saturated himself in the Bible. In the Old Testament. So he had. And perhaps you've been struggling your belief and confidence in God. It's because you've stopped reading or never started reading the Bible. You will grow in your belief in God as you read his word. Why else was he not ashamed? He was, he was convinced that God would be able to guard his life's commitment to the gospel until the great day of Christ's return. His confidence wasn't in, in, in his ability to weather the storm. His confidence was in God. And what God had already done, Spurgeon said he did not rest in a vague hope that he would be saved or an indefinite reliance upon the Christian religion or an optimistic expectation that all things would somehow turn out right in the end. He knew the Lord as a person and he deliberately placed himself in his keeping knowing him to be his savior. His life was in Jesus Christ. His life was hidden with Christ and God. Everything he would lose on this planet would be given back to him and then some on that last day. That, that day when, when all believers are more familiar with than any other day. That day, the day of death, when your soul will appear before God. The day of judgment where the books will be opened, your lives will be read. That day for which all other days were made. Christ is able to keep us until that day. And nothing can snatch us out of his hand. And he is able to place us then at the right hand of God and set our feet upon the rock when other things sink into a bottomless pit. Paul knew this. 
and he would preach this to Timothy. That God's chosen servants are commanded to share in the sufferings for the gospel and to keep their faith in Jesus by protecting the gospel until Jesus comes. So that leads to my second point, to keep the faith. This is Paul's third command in this passage here in verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of, sound, of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Keep the sound words, which from the Greek means healthy words, words that actually bring health. They bring life, words that exalt God and put man in his place. These words are uncorrupted. They're complete. They're, they are sound words, are pure and produce health in the hearer. And this begins with the gospel. As Christians, we're to believe and preach the gospel. You cannot be wrong about the gospel and be right with God. Paul is urging Timothy to follow his instruction as a pattern of sound teaching. And Paul set the theological parameters for the preaching of the gospel. But Paul was especially concerned about how it was done, about Timothy's attitude. So he says, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, the attitude which Timothy maintained his orthodoxy was almost as important as the orthodoxy itself. And how different church history would have been in prior generations if they had taken this to heart. But the next command there is to guard it. Verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy was to be loving and keeping the faith, but also be a soldier in the protection of the gospel. To guard the good deposit means to guard the gospel that has been entrusted to Timothy. He is placed in a position to protect the gospel from those that seek to destroy it. And it usually happens subtly with strange teaching here or misplaced importance there or just plain absence of the gospel. If you change the gospel, you lose the gospel. It would be better for us if the sun were quenched than if the gospel were gone, Spurgeon said. We must protect and guard the gospel. This is why we require members of this church to give a clear testimony of salvation. It's why we want our people to not sit under weak biblical teaching, but to have a robust theology that preaches the gospel. This is why we've asked Kelly Sauter to come from Henson Baptist Church for you ladies, because she believes and she preaches the gospel. I know her pastor. I don't want weak teaching for our ladies. I want gospel-saturated teaching and preaching for our women. We can't do this on our own, though. We need the help of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. It says, by the Holy Spirit, who has found his home in us, it helps us guard the good deposit entrusted to us, the gospel. A holy people called by God are true bodyguards of the gospel. Friends, your main care in all of your life should be to preserve the gospel, to keep it intact, and to hand it down to your descendants. And the gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We should know the gospel. If you are here and you call yourself a Christian, you should know the gospel. 
We've even simplified in some ways. God, man, Christ responds. You should be able to do this. In fact, friends, you need to remind yourself of this every day because you forget. This glorious gospel has been entrusted to us. And if you change it, if you weaken it, you lose it. So I pray as a church that we would not be known as people who are ashamed of the gospel. We keep pressing in on faith because there will be people that won't continue. There will be those that will leave. Look at verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus, Hermogenes. See, I, I think I pronounced them correctly that time. We know nothing about them except their mention here and their cowardice here. If Paul mentions them, then Timothy must have known them. They must have been in some way well-known in Asia. They were close to Paul, and now they're called out forever in Scripture. They're possibly leaders who at one point showed promise, but when the tough got going, they left. Paul doesn't put them down. He just states the facts. They left. They turned away. They were ashamed of his chains, and to save face, they bolted. I can imagine Paul was in pain after that. They must, it, it would have hurt. And to have friends, especially those that have been close to you in ministry, abandon you, it hurts. It lingers with you. There's hurt come when you've known them and you've sacrificed for them and loved them and invested in them. C.S. Lewis said, to love is to be vulnerable. If you don't want to be hurt, give yourself to no one, not even a cat. But Paul didn't stop loving. Paul didn't stop pouring into people. And there were some who stuck close. Look at verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Onesiphorus was a faithful steward, a faithful man to the Lord and to Paul. See, Paul doesn't linger long in remembering those that abandoned him. He moves right on to the one that supported and stayed. Onesiphorus refreshed Paul. He brought new life to him in his troubles. He wasn't ashamed of his chains. Instead, he searched for Paul. And I'm sure he, he had never been to Rome, and, and it was a broken city, just broken completely by all the fires and the destruction of Nero. But that didn't stop him. He says, he searched for me earnestly and found me. And I can see him walking the streets of Rome, knocking on doors, asking for directions, asking for clarity where Paul was. Doors, I'm sure, were slammed in his face, disapproving looks as he continued to search. He was asking dangerous questions. He was risking his life. He was risking his family's life. And at the very least, he's 
most definitely risking his reputation. He could have quit. He could have stopped after a day or two, believed that he had done everything he could. But eventually he finds Paul and refreshes him. Praise God for men like this. Praise God for families like that. Did he find mercy? We can be sure he did. Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they should receive mercy. This spiritual axiom will forever be realized by Paul's good friend. He actually refreshed the Lord Jesus Christ in his service to Paul. The Apostle Paul, the lover of souls, whose very heart rose and fell with the church, the man who continually prayed for the church, was refreshed by another. This man, now isolated in a dark cell, lonely, forsaken, for the sake of the gospel, he would exit the cell only when he was led to death. And how did the church respond? Tragically, most of the believers in Asia deserted him out of fear. Two of them we will know by name. But Timothy must not be like them. Timothy cannot do what they did. He must share in the sufferings for the gospel and keep his faith in Jesus by protecting the gospel. Are you trusting in Christ like Paul was? As you walk in this world, is your confidence in him or in yourself? You and I are walking this trail. It's a trail through a lofty mountain with treacherous turns and beautiful scenery along the way. And onward you climb up the rocky ridges, then you reach the beginning of snow and ice. And there in the midst of the precipices that we cannot see and understand the depth of danger, a fog now has set in, and we wonder where to go now. Perhaps it's, it's getting worse and worse until then a snowstorm has completely overcome us so that we can't see in front of us. Once we were confident in ourselves, now that confidence has evaporated. How will you continue? How will you walk now? But then a guide comes, a man who says he knows this mountain in its early days, he climbed it with his father. He says, I've trekked this place. I know every crevice, every cavern. If you follow me, even through the darkness, I will find a path and bring you down. But before I take you as your guide and safety, I demand of you complete trust. You must not plant your feet where you think it's safest, but you walk where I tell you to walk. Wherever I ask you to climb or descend, you must completely obey. And I will bring you home safely. You'll be tempted to trust in your own judgment. You'll be tempted to step where you think is best, but you must resist it. Trust me, follow me, and you'll be safe. Stop trusting yourself. Trust in me. This is life with Christ. Lost one day, completely bewildered by this world, then Christ appears and offers himself. Let me guide you. Let me be your sight. Even though you have thick darkness, let me be your foot. Lean on me in the slippery places. Let me be your very life. Let me wrap you in my crimson coat that will protect you from the storm. Friends, that's what it means to trust in Christ. 
Will you trust in Christ today, friends? To rely on Christ entirely with all of your life, with your future, with your family, with your career. I'm asking all of you, will you trust in Christ today? Perhaps you've lived the last six days in your own power. Repent. Turn to Christ. Trust in him completely. And friends, the promise we have from Scripture is that he will hold us fast. When fear consumes us, Christ will hold you fast. When the tempter seems like he will prevail, he will hold us fast. We could never keep our hold through this life. He must hold us fast. Christ held on to John Knox. He held on to the Apostle Paul. He held on to Timothy. And friends, if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, he will hold you fast. We're going to close our service by singing these truths. One of my favorite hymns as of late, He Will Hold Me Fast. So why don't you stand and join me in prayer and then we're gonna sing this together. Lord God, we, we pray that you would impress these things on our minds and our hearts. We pray that you would cause us to know your great gospel and that you would root in our hearts a wonderful hope in Christ that pulls us on to the future. Not fearfully, not boastfully, but resting certainly in you and in your goodness. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith as we feed on this hope through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you that you will hold us fast, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.